Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hankali, Hankali which, as everyone knows, is Hauser for Achtung, Achtung. But what I hear you cry is Hauser. Well, dear listener, it's a language spoken by around 63 million people in West Africa, principally in southern Niger and northern Nigeria. And now I hear you ask, but why, Al? What relevance does this intriguing linguistic information have to the well-known popular podcast known as We Have Ways of Making You Talk? Pray tell us, James Holland. Well, it's an interesting one. We have one of our listeners um, to thank for this, Andrew Walker, to be precise. And Andrew got in touch to say, Hankali, Hankali, <laughs> hashtag we have ways. That's Aktung in West African language, Hauser at El Murray at James 1940. I hope you can feature the 82nd West African Division in Burma as one of your forgotten armies. They fought in unbelievably hard conditions and were almost completely forgotten even by the time they got home. Well, he's absolutely right. And um, again, it just goes to show the kind of global reach of World War II. So the um, two divisions, it was originally the West African Frontier Force. Yep. And of course, Britain had some possessions in West Africa. And with the closure of the Suez Canal, once Italy was in the war and everything, actually West Africa became quite important. It was really important that we didn't lose hold of that because, yep. of course, there's all that shipping now going to South Africa all the way around to India yep. and up in um, up to um, Egypt and so on. And uh, a chap called uh, General Gifford, um, was uh, put in charge of all West African forces. He'd seen um, service in East Africa, in the East Africa campaign in 1941, uh, and done okay. Uh, and so he's then put in charge of, of, of West Africa, and he was the guy who organised in the, the, the West African Frontier Force into two divisions, the 81st West African Division and the 82nd West African Division. And yeah. actually, it's the 81st that goes out to Burma first, and they're in place by the beginning of 1944, and they are on the eastern flank, the left-hand flank um, at the Battle of the Admin Box, right. which happens in February 1944, when basically the Japanese make a sort of um, a, a kind of thrust um, before their main attack up towards Kimfa, um, Imphal and Kohima. Um, and uh, they actually surround the, the 7th Indian Division. Yep. And the 81st Africans, West Africans are on the, on, the, on the flank of that. And obviously British and Slim win that particular scrap. Yep. And the 81st um, West African go into action in the follow-up in, in the in the Arakan Offensive in, in March 1944. 
The 82nd don't go out until May 1944, and they first go to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and then they uh, they finally go into action at the end of 1944 in the third Arakan offensive. And actually, they do pretty well. They do now, all right. So, I mean, this is the, the, is this a, an army with British officers and African uh, exactly. men? Yes, because the Indi- the army, the Indian army, but by by the time we're talking about, it, we have Indian officers and we have. Uh, in fact, in fact, they've sort of the Slim and uh, Slim and the Co have given in to the idea that they that they're going to have to have Indian officers, and that and that that also then is going to be a, a p- political question going forward because Indian independence is a very big uh, question mark, and you've got to mobilise men to fight for the British Empire that they the British Empire that they want to leave. So that are these, is this what's happening in the, in these African regiments as well? Or is it, or is it, is it sort of a, 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 for want of a better word, like a downscaled uh, uh, situation for the, for the actual African men? Are they, I mean, are they mercenaries? That's a, if you want, I mean, what are they fighting for? I suppose they are. I mean, they are at the time British subjects. Um, You know, they are part of the the, the British empire. Um, there is a, there is, but, but they're not about to, I mean, you know, as, as we all know, um, the end of the empire died by the 1960s and, and those countries got their yeah. independence and stuff, but it's not on the horizon the same way that it is for, it is, for it India, is in India, which all yeah. happened in 1947, of course. Um, so, that, and, and also don't forget, these are new divisions. Yeah, so it's raised, not like yeah. the Indian divisions where they've been fighting literally, all, you know, since before the war on the Northwest yeah. Frontier and stuff. So, so there isn't that kind of sort of urgency to get... Um, African officers in, so there they are. Yeah. Griff Reese Jones' dad was one of the officers. Really? I seem to remember. Um, yeah, I remember watching a program of him. I think his dad was in the eighty first. Um, but yeah, they were they were because, British officers because because the, the I mean you know we've talked an awful lot about um, uh, the Northwest Europe campaign. The difference in Burma is this is empire on empire conflict, isn't it? Yes, it's the Japanese empire that's basically not really an empire. It's trying to be one. Yes. Coming up against the, the biggest and at the time oldest empire in the world, yeah, um, and so the British are mustering all their imperial stuff from all over the world, and the Japanese have, of course, there's an there's a component of Indian soldiers fighting the Japanese. There's the Burmese Free Army or whatever it's called. The, um, yes, and yes, Sun Tzu yes. father, yeah, Aung San, yeah, uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, set up. I've just read a really, really fantastic book actually about Burma by a chap called David Imer, and it's a kind of sort of history of Burma and a travelogue. So it's, it's you know, it's told now. Yeah. And of course, the Arakan, which is where the 82nd and the 81st West African divisions are are in action, is now Rohin State. This is where the yeah. Rohingyas are. Yeah. And you, you literally just cannot get there because, you know, the, the, the government don't want you to go there because they don't want to see the fact that they're um, enacting a huge ethnic cleansing program yeah. to get rid of all these Muslims. Most of the Muslims came from, from India and Bangladesh, yeah. Yeah. what's now Bangladesh, what was Bengal, um, brought over by the British during the 19th century as kind of extra workers and stuff and fought on behalf the the, the muscle men as they were known yeah. the muslims fought on behalf of the british very very successfully in the in the arakan campaign so there's a whole load of sort of bitterness about that and ang sang was was actually in favor of the japanese to yes, start off yeah. until he realized they were even worse than the british by by a factor of about a million and <laughs> and uh, and quickly changed sides at the end end of the war but it i mean the whole thing was an absolute you know has become an absolute mess but but to go back to the 82nd West African Division, yeah. actually, they fought pretty damn well. Yeah. Um, and they were part of 15 Corps um, in that third battle. And, you know, whenever you come up against the Japanese, it doesn't matter how kind of emaciated they are. It doesn't matter how kind of, you know, bad they are. But because they're kind of fanatical, because they're, they're just ordered to just keep fighting until they're all dead. Um, you know, the, the fighting that you do come up, uh, you do get involved in, is 
always going to be beastly and violent and, and and horrible. And actually, they suffered something like I think about two 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 and a half thousand casualties in a in a division, which of a fighting force of a you know fifteen thousand sixteen thousand yeah. man division, you know ten to eleven thousand men. You know, for two and a half thousand, that's that's twenty five percent casualties. That's the, quite a lot. Because the pattern of fighting in in in, in uh, fighting the Japanese ten once once they've sort of once fourteenth uh, army sort of mastered it is that you can break up their attack, you can you can break up their counterattack, but actually winkling the individuals out of the places they've exactly. decided to make their last stand is costly. And there's no... There's the, the, no and there there's is no, no alternative no to the full way frontal of, attack. Yeah, there's no so other way of doing yeah, it. Yeah. You've got to... You've got. They're not going to surrender, so you've got to go in and kill kill them in one by one. Yes, and you have to infiltrate, and that means you have to, you know, you have to infiltrate, and you can work your way around, but you've still got to. When I say the full frontal attack, what you you've still got to get to those bunkers. Yeah, and there is ultimately no alternative other than blasting them and attacking them and boots on the ground and actually yeah. getting up to these bunkers and getting close enough to lob yeah. in grenades and yeah. flamethrowers and all the rest of it. I mean, it's a really really horrible business, but they fight incredibly well, and they actually they do catch a Buffidong, which is a is a, is a town that's sort of been exchanged several times. And they open up the Mondor um, uh, Buffedon Road, which is this key road, which has basically been fought over for kind of uh, um, three years. And it's a sort of key access point. And the 82nd West Africans do that. So, you know, they perform pretty damn well, frankly. And, you know, what a long way from home. Yeah. Well, brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. Um, uh, now, that's a good question. You see, you ask yeah. us a simple question. Could you please feature and look what happens Um Verbal diarrhea. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so, um, uh, but always now, happy talking about that. No, no to be of course. Now, now, James, since we, uh, last broke podcast bread, um, you've been omnipresent on our screens. I had to turn my television <laughs> off. Right. James <laughs> Holland in my bloody lovely. living room again. <laughs> but scrubbed up well. Nice suit. Um, yeah. Thank you. Nice of you to make an effort for the television. Um, uh, and, uh, but um, actually, it was a bit of a nightmare because on Thursday, last Thursday, we had to um, we were presenting from um, from Bayer, and we were on this coach, and we were supposed to be it had been arranged that we had complete passes through the roadblocks, yeah. which were extensive and and have to say far more effective than anything that Twenty First Panzer had managed on <laughs> on D Day itself. Um, and so uh, me and Dan Snow had to run from one side of Bayer to another. And as you can imagine, in my three-piece wool suit, which might look quite spivvy, but when you're running is not great. <laughs> Got there with three minutes to go before so, kind of... Because so uh, I watched the coverage from Portsmouth on the 5th. Yes. Um, uh, uh, and I will... I thought it was particularly well done. and uh, um, Apart from the air fly past. The, well, the, well, that's because the RAF has taken the idea of the few, quite literally. And they've only got <laughs> it was a few, just awful. They've literally it only got a really few awful. planes. I literally, just before that, been talking about the fact that the Allies had 10,600 aircraft on D-Day itself. <laughs> and then this kind of absolutely pathetic kind of fly past. Game. I thought, well, why did they do that? Why didn't they just put the Battle of Brett Memorial flight out? Yes, it was odd that in they, entirety. It, it was, it and, was odd. and swing round a couple of times, yeah. and everyone had been really happy. Yeah, I mean, why? Where, where was the yeah. Lancaster? Yeah, anyway. I, well, I don't know that. Um, I, I'll go check their manifest. Um, the, 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 <laughs> I thought that. I mean, it was very interesting that they did that. Um, that they did David Haig's play about um, the excerpts from that about Stag. Yes, uh, and that we had the we had the f bomb during um, international um, Second World War commemorations. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, a, that was a, st a striking moment. In know, front of the Queen. In front of the Queen. Um, uh, although th there's a great story about so when the King and the Queen came to inspect first Airborne Division, a bloke got his fingers caught in a horse when they opened the 
they opened the door when they're getting a jeep out and he went Fuck, like that <laughs> and it, all these officers running around going that didn't happen mom anyway the point is the point is i i, I thought i thought it was, that was really good that that they did that yeah because it, it, there's something about donald trump sat there watching ike eisenhower making an actual big proper life or death decision and yeah. uh, and having to you know listen to experts and everything was quite gratifying it was very weird <laughs> looking across and going my god that is the donald there he is <laughs> and he did look very orange and his hair looked ginger than i thought i thought he was blonde but he was definitely orange um it was but, but, um, but, um and the the thing of the item about bill millin that was nice. I confess I had something in my eye during that. I thought that was particularly poignantly oh done. Oh, my God, I had something. I was really, I was, you know, we're all known, of course, being British for uh, having a straight bottom lip, but um, it, it was... A straight uh, bottom lip? You know, sort of wobbly. Not, stiff, not stiff, stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip, then. What's wrong with your face, James? <laughs> <laughs> stiff upper lip. But it was wobbling then when yeah. Teresa did her, her letter. Yeah, I her mean... Her last letter. It was really moving. And the thing is, because because we talk every week about this history, um, and quite a lot of it in kind of in the abstract, and um, and we I don't think we do chaps on maps, which is the thing that um, that, that is a, a, a criticism you can level at military history. And I do think we try to make it personal, but I really felt watching a lot of the coverage. Um, sometimes I get quite ambivalent about commemoration and. And they were all heroes and all that sort of thing. And, you know, there's that Harry Billinge, who was on mm. uh, BBC Breakfast, who went, oh, no, I was no hero. You know, the heroes are all dead and all that sort of thing, which was incredibly moving and made me think, am I too, why am I interested in this? What's the point in being interested in this? Mm. Uh, 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 you, do you know what I mean? And, I, and I, yeah. I, I, some, some of it leaves me feeling ambivalent. And obviously, we, I grew up in a kind of Victor comic, Boy's own action man airfix era, and and which sometimes makes me think, how how seriously do I take this? How actually, um, how much, how much do I understand the suffering that people went through and the things that were asked of people? And that's the that's the, whenever whenever there's a big commemoration on this, I come away feeling I come away feeling very ambivalent about my interest in the Second World War because it's actually it's a, a horror story. From start to fucking finish, the whole thing—you know—the Normandy campaign is a horror story, like of the of the worst kind imaginable. And you know, reading about because I've, I've been reading about Hill One One Two since we, you know, which is a bit that doesn't get talked about. You know, all we always asked about Goodwood. Every week, someone will ask us about Goodwood. And up the road, there's Jupiter going on, and all these other and Charnwood and and Epsom and all these other all these other actions that don't get the. The, the sort of um, that don't have the controversy points of Goodwood, and Jupiter is a horror show. There is no other way of describing it. It's, it, it's a meat grinder. Yeah, it absolutely. And, is. and and okay, the Germans are written down and the and the and destroyed as a fighting force. And you can read this dispassionate things as you know it's a tactical loss for the Allies, but a strategic win. What that means is loads of people getting killed yeah. and loads of people being mutilated. And well, the, the the Allied way of war was was that you use firepower as much as you possibly can. But yeah. unfortunately, you've got to get the Germans to counterattack, which they always do with Pavlovian regularity. Yeah. And so, how do you how do you get them to come out of their foxholes and actually expose themselves so that you can then absolutely grind them up with your firepower? And the only way you do that was is with armor and infantry. Yeah. And so those frontline infantry units, although they're actually in terms of numbers boots on the ground you're talking about comparatively small numbers the casualty rates are absolutely horrific yeah. but i'll tell you what my my take on on the d-day week which i have to say was uh, and i don't want to sound all, all kind of sort of um too wanky but it it was 
the most extraordinary privilege to be part of it all. It no, really, I can only uh, imagine. To witness it. It really was very, very special. And I think it's it's one of th- of a couple of things. I think the first thing is that you and I have lived with this generation all our lives. They've yep. always been there. The yep. Second World War happened before we were born, but we've always known these boys they were, yep. uh, and girls. They were, yep. They've always been a part of our life. But now they're in the twilight. They're, they are really dwindling. They're seriously old. They're kind of in their 90s. Yep. And we all know that another five or ten years, they're going to be gone. That mm. that will... There'll be a hairy patch of the Second World War. There'll be a hairy patch. And... That is a big moment, and everyone is just sort of desperate to hold on to them. Everyone knows that, and and we're kind of nostalgic on on a whole host of of levels. We do think of them as the golden generation because it was whatever you, however murky it got in the middle of the war, it was still a justified war. Yeah, yeah. and and so I think we do venerate them in in a way that we don't even kind of other combatants and other people from history. You know, they are the special generation because they were in the Second World War against yeah. Nazism and yeah. some nasty things. And so we're desperate to hold on to them. We don't want to let them go, and, and we want to relish them while we've got the chance. And suddenly, you know, you know, I was on the Boudicca with 300 veterans. You know, I was doing a talk at, at the Normandy, Normandy Institute just outside San Marigliese on Tuesday last week um, to 100 veterans, of which, you know, half were American, the rest were British, and there were actually a few Germans as well, which was interesting. But, but you know, so you really want to sort of cherish them. The second thing is the backdrop to this, which is all the shit that's going on around the world at the moment. Politically, Trump, yeah. the rise of nationalism, all this kind of stuff, polarisation of people, the kind of total division that we find ourselves in the UK at the moment um, and elsewhere across across Europe. And it sort of makes you think about all this stuff. In a, in, you know, I think, first of all, I think everyone was really relieved to just not be talking about the B word for, yeah, for a yeah, few yeah. days. But at the same token, you know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, what does this mean? What were they all fighting for? And there's two narratives. You know, the the, the Brexiteer narrative is that, you know, this is what we fought for so that we don't have to kind of, you know... Answer to anyone. Answer to anyone. The other one is we, we fought for it so that we could liberate Europe and so everyone can enjoy the freedoms. You know, it was really interesting that after the Bayerk um, cemetery thing, I finally got my way back to Aramange, the sort of world's biggest party going on, the whole of Aramange, you know, hundreds of vehicles on the beaches. There were people of every national including Germans. I met I met a German girl who was dressed in as a you know in British yeah. British kit. It was fantastic. I had a really interesting conversation with her. But there were there were Swedes, Norwegians, Dutch, Belgians, you know, Americans, Canadians, Brits, you know, literally everyone, everyone, people dressed up in living history stuff and vehicles and but everyone having beers and drinks and a party. All the veterans treated like total rock stars. I mean, it was a whole yeah. load of veterans that were kind of just walking down the main drag in Aramarch, you know, by the car park between, you know, where the museum is. Yeah. Uh, and straight everyone clapping them and I mean it was just totally brilliant to witness and I thought yeah this is what you fought for mate because yeah. you know everyone's just doing what the hell they want yeah it's great there's no yep. oppression there's no restrictions on press you can have a party in the middle of the street on a Thursday in June yep you know what's not to like yeah and I think I think it's those two things I think it's that's what's you know because it was pretty poignant five years ago in 2014. Yeah, but, but yeah. It's, but it, it, it was it was even it's got pointer. A, it's got this yes, week. even pointer. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. Well, we uh, it threw uh, for me it threw up loads of emotions and also it sort of made me think because I, I I'll be honest I've struggled with my interest in the Second World War. There was a time where I thought I've got to be in, for God's sake be interested in something else. You muppet. <laughs> like like. To find something else to be interested in, and I try at one point tried to put it to put it to bed, and then you see a thing like the, the commemoration last week, and I, I I and I know in the end I can't, and 
it's got me. There's nothing I can do about it. But isn't it the human drama of it all? Oh, of I mean, course it is. I mean, you know, course, that's the thing that yes, gets me. Yes, of course me. it is. But, uh, but I know where it came from. I know it came from making models, models spitfires, yes. you know, and all that. Anyway, we have some questions. Um, this is from a uh, uh, British, British politics teacher who asks, loving the, well, says, first of all, loving the podcast, gents, which is largely why this is being read out. Did 21 Panzer, James Now, did 21 Panzer reach the coast between Sword and Gold late on D-Day before retreating? Not quite. They almost got there. This was Opel Bronikowski, who was one of the uh, regimental commanders um, on 21st Panzer. And he had a whole load of tanks and they were they were, um, they were were badly split up. They, they'd, they'd been sent on the eastern side the night before. Yeah. And then they had to kind of sort of completely realign when they realised what was going on. So when I say the eastern side, they've gone to kind of take on the airborne, 6th Airborne that have landed. Yep. Uh, And they do this twice, the Germans. So they send off the uh, mobile reserve of the 352nd Infantry Division towards the American Airborne and and the Titanic, Operation Titanic, which is the the dummy parachutists and stuff. Um, They go off after that. And 21st Panzer Division goes off after the 6th Airborne. Uh, And I always think this is... okay. Certainly the 352nd, this is the decision of, of General Eric Marks, who's generally considered to be, you know, a brilliant commander, um, hugely experienced and all the rest of it. And I kind of think he should have known better because there were lots of really bad German commanders, but Marx yeah. is generally considered to be one of the good ones. But he should have known, since the Germans were the inventors of airborne operations, that these are coup de main operations and they always are going to kind of precede a bigger effort. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, keep your powder dry, mate, and yeah. and and counteract the uh, yeah. the main invasion, which is inevitably going to follow. And it's amazing that Marx doesn't do that. And it's exactly the same with Feutinger, who's the commander of the 21st Panzer Division. He's got more excuse because he's just a fat Nazi who's seeing his mistress in Paris that night and hurries back and makes that decision. It's a really bad one. And what that means is that Opel Bronikowski has got to move his entire division. He can't get through Kong because it's too complicated and it's too, it's too clogged. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to moving all the civilians out and the Germans are moving out of Kong anyway. So he then has to do this incredibly long-winded uh, um, march order south of Con and around yeah. and then yeah. starts moving down. But laying in wait for him are um, the show, uh, the uh, sorry, sorry, the Staffordshire Yeomanry. Yep. It was run by um, the the commander is um, uh, is a chap called Edie, who was part of the Bass family. So they have on their their caps and their, yeah. their emblem is the old Bass beer red triangle. Yeah. Um, and they're waiting for them, and um, uh, and they launch an ambush, which is far more effective than anything that Wittmann does at um, Philobocage a few days later, <laughs> uh, and absolutely hammer them. Yeah. Then just as they're pulling back, just to really kind of put the willies up them, um, more parachute drops come in. Um, uh, and uh, Oppen Bronikowski sort of reckons that retreat is a better form of valour and, and, and skedaddles. And that's yeah, the anyway. second lift at sort of nine o'clock in the evening, exactly. isn't it? Which yeah. is the remaining components of yes. Six Airborne, because you've had you've had three parachute battalions and the coup de main party, the first lot at midnight. Exactly. Ish. Yes. Um, and then and then all the all of the glider element of um, so for, so uh, six air landing brigade turn yep. up in their gliders that off that that evening don't they yes. and there's stories of germans uh, throwing their rifles away when they see that happen because they mm. think well we can't beat this yeah you know well, yeah. yeah hundreds of frankly. hundreds of gliders turning up yeah uh, uh, you know you've had the invasion in the, the, the fleet in the morning and then this in the evening it's sort of really ramming home the point that you're yeah what you're up against 
Okay. Right. Uh, Jimmy Gregory asks, did anyone... So the answer is no, they didn't. They didn't get to uh, the they coast. They got close, but they didn't get quite... Yeah. Not close um, did anyone ever get to the... Jimmy Gregory asks, did anyone ever get to the bottom of why several of the code names involved in DDA appeared in the Daily Telegraph crossword in the months preceding the invasion? Now, this is a sort of well-known kind of pub quiz question thing. Yeah. That, that, this, that, that Omaha and Utah and... They turn up in the Daily Telegraph crossword. Yeah, I've got to, got to admit, I don't know anything about this. I don't know, nor do I. I mean, I know I know of the story, but I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I know the story, and I think and it, it's some English teacher in a public school or something. But that's all I know. So yeah. if if anyone could if anyone could actually direct us towards the answer to this, um, because here's the thing. We don't know everything. I know it's hard to believe, dear listener. <laughs> um, we don't. We, we, I mean, you know, the cut of our jib is that we might. But anyway, um, it's time for a break. But before we do, here's a splendid piece of correspondence from Lydia Jane, who I'm delighted to welcome to the community as a new listener. She says, listening to hashtag We Have Ways with at Al Murray and at James1940 for the first time, can confirm buggers muddle is my new favourite expression. Excellent. We'll be back in a moment with more inappropriate nonsense shortly. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back. Willkommen zurück to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I don't know if that's right. Um, we absolutely, it's just back. Zurich. Anyway, don't worry about it. We absolutely love all your correspondence. Please keep getting in touch with your questions, observations, stories, and yes, corrections. And But if you do know the D-Day crossword story, please let us know. We read literally anything and we'll try and answer as many as we can. Now, how about this one from Ben Johnson, who I assume is not the disgraced former 100-metre champion. Or indeed if, the poet. Or the, the punch, uh, yeah, of course, the poet. Playwright. If D-Day never happened, when would the war have ended and how? Hashtag we have ways. Now, that actually leads leads us quite directly to this um, uh, that was posted um, on D-Day on the 6th of June from the <laughs> Ministry of Foreign Affairs Russia Twitter account at MFA underscore Russia. Hashtag Zakharova. And it reads, The Normandy landings were not a game changer for the outcome of World War II and the Great Patriotic War. The outcome was determined by the Red Army's victories, mainly in Stalingrad and Kursk. For three years, the UK and then the US dragged out, opening the Second Front. And a picture of the Normandy landings there, though, even though they're disregarding them. Now, um, well, what do you make of that, James? Well, not a lot, if I'm completely honest. Yeah. I mean... You know, we're engaged in uh, in multiple different ways. And what you have to understand is that the Western allies are fighting a far more efficient war than the Red Army is. Um, you know, boots on vast numbers of boots on the ground is not a good way to fight a war because what tends to happen is you have much, much higher casualties, well, as they is, discovered. But this is the thing. Cause Stalingrad, Stalingrad is basically... Um, uh, uh, Tunisia is happening kind of, you know, around yeah. about the same time. So yeah. the amount of people captured... With more, equipment with taken, greater... Is, and is also the amount Tunisia. of equipment that was yeah. captured in Tunisia was greater than the amount of equipment that was captured at Stalingrad by quite a large margin. Um, don't forget that the uh, the Axis, Axis forces in Tunisia are still fighting war on air, land and sea, whereas uh, opposite um, at Stalingrad, they're just basically fighting a... To all intents and purposes, a land war by that stage. Yes, the Luftwaffe involved, but not a huge amount. Um 
And, uh, you know, don't forget, we're also hammering German industry, which has a knock-on effect to what's going on the Eastern Front uh, with our air power, which, is, again, is a is quite a sensible way of, of using your assets. Um, and actually, um, it's really interesting because there's a, 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 a comparatively recent book that's just come out called How the War Was Won. And I think he's American. He's called Phillips O'Brien. And it's really interesting. And he argues, and I've got to say he argues very convincingly, that actually in terms of material damage to the German war effort, the Western allies caused more because of the air campaign and because yeah. of the completeness of the campaign and because of the Battle of the Atlantic and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, you know, it's just I just don't understand why why the Russians keep going on about this in this this same sort of way. And, and you know, people always make this terrible assumption that boots on the ground equates to strategic importance. Now, no one would deny that the Battle of Britain was a, a, a battle of enormous strategic importance. No one would deny that the Battle of Guadalcanal in the South Pacific was a battle of enormous strategic importance. And yet the number of combatants was actually, compared to what comes later on in the war, is comparatively small. It just The two just don't go together. And but, what the Allies are doing is this steel-not-flesh policy of using yeah. technology, modernity, global reach, modern science, to do a lot of the hard yards but, Because the, the, old, the old formulation... It's time, blood, money. So it's it's British time. The British supply timed the Second World War. Mm. The Russians supply blood, and the Americans supply them money. It's the it's the, the sort of pact. Yeah, it's just, but it's, it's not quite it's, right. It's not right. It's not it's, right because also it's, it's I mean, sort of piffy and glib, and actually yeah. sounds good and clever and smart, but actually it's isn't. It's, 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 it's a shortcut yeah. for kind of Kursk, not really going into it properly. Because Kursk, this, this brand new research yes. on the Kursk battlefield. Ben Wheatley's done this. Yeah, brand, I've just got, I've just got it on your recommendation. Research. Uh, 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 Prokhorovka, I think is how you pronounce it. Yes. Which is where it's the famous tank ditch, Fifth Guards Tank Army. And the Russians have always told this story that Kursk is this massive encounter where the Germans the Germans suffer a shattering defeat. Now, the Germans uh, uh, and lose all sorts of material and 500 tanks or something. But, but, but uh, Prokhorovka, they've got a Luftwaffe overflight uh, photos of the battle. And it's quite a confined area. It's not a big area. It's and, not a big area compared to the rest like, of the whole of the Kursk. Exactly, and it's like, and, and it's it's not five hundred German tanks written down by the destroyed by the two thousand Russian tanks. That it, it, it's twenty five German tanks and hundreds of Russian tanks. And yes, there's a victory at Kursk, but it's not the kind of victory I'd want to be involved in much because. Because the the you know infantry ca- casualties are five point six to one is the is the casualty ratio. So for every German soldier killed, it's five point six Russians killed. I mean, you can call that a win if you want. I mean, the other thing, the other thing, uh, I think, and you could argue, and thank God for that, because if the Russians had been um, tactically um, more apt, that's the opposite of inept. Isn't it? <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that they'd have been in Paris by the end of um, 1944. That you. you you know what I mean? If they'd if they'd got their shit together, and if they'd figured out a way of beating the Germans the way that the Western Allies did, God knows what. Because because the game cha- you know the Normandy lands were not a game changer for the Allies. Yes, they were because it meant we got to the, the Allies. Western Allies got to Paris. They got to they got to Antwerp. They got to Brussels. They got to Amsterdam. They got into Germany, and you have you then and you have Western presence in in. In in Western Europe, yeah. which which wouldn't have happened, and if the you know if they'd not been fighting like in Stalingrad and Kursk, Paris would have you'd have red Paris, you'd have had you'd have had 
Russian boots in Calais, which is, of course, the great nightmare, isn't it? At well, the end of the war, that that might happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the alternative to that is using atomic weapons, which is what the Manhattan Project is for in the first place. Yeah. You know? So, so either because, way, because, it's a really, really bad outcome. Churchill's running feasibility right at the end of the war, isn't he? He's going, "What if we have to fight the Russians? Can we do it? What, yeah, what, what yeah, do yeah. we do?" Yeah. And they put together a sort of there's a feasibility done on it, and do you recruit German divisions to help, and all this sort of all this sort of stuff, which is a, well, the, well, know, the truth is, terrifying is, prospect. Is, is yes, we could have done. Um, everyone was tired and didn't want to, which is why we didn't. But yes, we could have done, and we would have won because because we have superior firepower to them, but by a, a country mile, and we have far greater air forces, and mm. we you know we have control of the skies, which the Russians wouldn't have. So. Yes, we would. It would have been brutal and bloody. I mean, what is really interesting, when you look at, you know, by 1943, Kursk is the start of the deep battle. Yeah. You know, so they're having this complete revolution after the purges in the late 1930s where they've just got rid of, you know, and they, they have such an embarrassment in Finland, the Red Army, where they perform really yeah. badly. And they've got to kind of relearn everything. And the and the, the commanders that haven't been purged in the late 1930s have to kind of sort of emerge, uh, you know, and this is the Konyevs and, and Chukovs and Rokosovskis and all the rest of it. Um, they have to emerge and sort of prove themselves which they do by 1943, and uh, and particularly Rokosovsky. And the deep battle, so what they do, and and what they do for Operation Bagration, which obviously starts on 22nd of June 1944, is they amass vast amounts of men, firepower, tanks, artillery pieces, and all the rest of it. And they just go, they, they kind of like swing back on a kind of sort of ball on a chain and just go, bam, straight yep. into the Germans. Take just spectacularly large casualties uh, and then they run out of steam after about six weeks and then they have to stop for another three months yep. until they can build up and yep. create another 80 divisions uh, and start the whole process all over again and so what what you see with the allies is you see yes you see offensives but you see a sort of general sort of just a constant sort of grinding forward all the time they're never stopping broad, broad front a broad front and in just a constant pressure all the time Whereas with the Red Army, they have a different way of doing it, which is doing this kind of sort of big punch, pause, recuperate, big punch. I mean, Operation Gretchen, I think they lose something like three quarters of a million men. Yeah. Three quarters of a million men. I mean, yeah. it's just, it is unbelievable. And since they only start with kind of, whatever it is, 1.6 million men, yeah. that's quite, that's over 50% casualties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or whatever yeah. it is. I can't quite remember the statistics, yeah, yeah, yeah. so don't hold me on it. But it's that, that kind of sort of range. And, you know, every which way you look at it, that is not an efficient way to fight a war. No. But the point is the Russians, compared to everybody else, have got infinitesimal kind of resources in in, in manpower. And they don't care about the lives of their men. Well, you also, know, if they come across a minefield, they just send them across but, it until there isn't a minefield you've anymore. Also, you've also got, um, uh, because of the politics, you've got like a good news culture. So you've got to you've got to report back to your boss and go, it's going incredibly well. And the, yes. enemy, the enemy's under massive pressure and... Um, uh, and uh, you can't tell you can't tell the truth. You can't say no. you can't. Uh, and the Germans have also got have also got that going on. Um, so you've you've two totalitarian states where no one no one is actually telling the truth to anybody. So um, the the it's the poor old. I mean, it's, you know, this makes when, when people talk the PBI, they talk about poor bloody infantry in the British Army. I mean, yeah. this is like a this is a you know Russian tank crews. They they had four hundred thousand men. Uh, totally trained as Russian tank crews, three hundred thousand killed. Uh, killed, killed. I know it's unbelievable. I mean, you, so no, you, no one should doubt the only kind of- one in four chance of surviving as a Russian tanker. I mean, that is like that yeah. is completely off the scale. Uh, but compared yeah, to the what West. I was going to say is that no, no one should doubt the uh, enormous courage and just 
grim kind of grinding on of of the red army troops i mean they're just mm. absolutely phenomenal they, they they deserve our respect and and you yes, know the, and, the, and they're fated but but the point is it's always sort of it's kind of sort of one or the other and i, I don't yeah. think you should see it in those terms no, it's, exactly, it's not, it's not exactly. a question of kind of one-upmanship it's a question of yeah. so exactly it's, it's a so complete the, effort so this idea that the normandy lands were not a game changer for the outcome of the, i mean the reason they call it the great they don't call it world war Two. they call it the great patriot war of course the russians because they lost the first one right now. <laughs> yeah, I've got another one here. <laughs> got another, uh, one. another D-Day one. Love the show. Thank you very much. Um, this is from Chris Leonovich. Um, did the Allies have a plan if the Germans counterattacked successfully on D-Day and we failed to establish a beachhead? A second invasion? Would it have eventually happened just with more bloodshed? Thanks. Well, Robert Oppenheimer was working on that, I think is the answer to the question. Isn't it? The atom yes. bomb. That's your yes. next... That's your next roll of the dice if the Normandy landings don't yeah. work. I expect I could have had to quit, would yes. have had to resign. Famously, he, he wrote his, and he wrote his, his famous speech. Famous letter. Yeah. I mean, you you know, the, the Normandy Normandy has to succeed. It, it, D-Day has to succeed. There's kind of no... Yeah. yeah. No other... It, 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 it's a good... It's an interesting counterfactual, an interesting idea. But when you... I mean, we've been talking about it already. You look at... You look at the decisions having to be made by the Germans on the ground. It's 352nd. They don't know what to do. They split their effort in two. They don't meet the main effort from the Allies because there's five five beach landings going on. There's no way they can meet all yeah, of those. Yeah, my argument about that was they're just committed too early. Well, exactly. But but the point is the point is they don't you know they, they, Not they don't, they made any they don't anyway. have the resources no. to meet what they're facing. No. And so and so I don't. I, I, it is an interesting question if the D-Day landings have failed, but the Germans didn't have the means at their disposal to make them fail, and 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 this is yeah. I mean, there is there is you know from the Allied commander's point of view, you know, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, there is just a huge amount of jeopardy because there are so many things that can go wrong. Yeah. You know, not clearing enough mine mines from the channel. Yeah, um, not getting enough of a beat. You know, not not establishing a strong enough um, a bridgehead. You know, it's those early days that are the real worry. Yeah. It's, it's, it's getting there and and then winning that that race to build up supplies. Yeah. You know, and on paper, it looks like the Germans have got the easier job, but of course they haven't because all the bridges have been destroyed by the air power, um, Allied air forces and railways chewed up yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, and of course, you know, as we were talking the other day, you know, now there's these these fighter bombers kind of sort of marauding anyone that yeah. moves during daylight. And um, their command structure and, and the people making the decisions. And all of that. Uh, yeah. But when you're, when you're Eisenhower... Uh, and when you're Ramsey, and when you're Lee Mallory, and not when you're Monty because he's supremely confident, but everyone else is thinking, crikey, you know, yeah. this this is a very stiff order, and the stakes are so high, we can't let it fail. It's a bit like some going into a cup final where you know, you know, it's a cricket World Cup final. You know, you should, you know, you're on, you might be favourites on paper. Yeah, I was England Pakistan the other day, right? But it goes wrong. Yeah. Okay. Um, Glenn Addison asks. I mean, basically, it would it would have if D-Day had failed, then the air barons would have gone. All right, um, we double Unleashed the size us. of our we double the size of our bomber bomber um, uh, capability, and we flatten everything, everything, and we we even we, more than it's already planned. even more it's already flattened. We bomb the rubble and we and we paste Germany into oblivion. Yeah, and actually, you're 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 right about that. I mean, you know, when you look at you know the the great cities of of Germany. Look at Berlin at the end of the war. We've all seen those pictures of the Russians at the Reichstag, and we've all seen the pictures of the devastation of Berlin. That is not the Red Army. That's RAF Bomber yeah. Command. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so Germany would have been starved in submission, and you got the end of you got the end of World War One all over again, basically. Anyway, yes. Hi, Glyn Anderson says I love the podcast. We have ways of making you talk. Very on brand there, Glyn. Excellent, great stuff. He says as well. Was wondering if you had any insights on what the civilian experience was like for those caught up in the Normandy liberation, bombardment of the beaches and bridges situation near villages, etc. Well, I think terrible is the. Yeah, it was really bad. Really bad. I mean, you know. Fifteen to twenty thousand dead, hundred thousand casualties. So you know you're, you know that that's sort of on a par with the Americans and the British and Canadians. I mean, yeah. you know, separately. I mean more more French people are killed in the run up to D Day than anyone else. Yes, it's another. Right? Well, it's another sort of you know conservatively kind the of transport sort of, plan and all that. Yeah, it's about again, it's about it's about another fifteen twenty thousand something like that. I mean, it is quite a lot. I had such an interesting conversation with uh, the, the other day on last Tuesday when I was doing this 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 talk with all these veterans. And I was sitting next to a, a kind of youngish Frenchman, and I said, "Look, you know, how do you feel about the fact that so many of your towns and cities were yeah. were absolutely flattened? I mean, there's a series of colour photographs of Saint Lô, for example. I mean, everyone talks about Con, but but you talk a look at Saint Lô. It's absolutely. I mean, it looks like Aleppo. Yeah, you know, we've, which, for, yep. which we've all become so familiar, and yep. which is the kind of, sort of modern day kind of sort of um, image of kind of mass destruction of a town. It looks just like that. And I said to him, "How do you how do you feel about the fact that?" You know, the Allies were flattening Perrier and Saint-Lô and Caen and Villebocage, totally flattened. Tilly Cercil, one house left standing. Yeah. And he said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, you saved 50 million. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's, that's quite big of it. Because at I the mean- time, the, 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 the time a lot of Allied soldiers was were sort of, had been told the French would be pleased to see them. And, you know, we had, the Allies did turn up and flatten everything and kill their livestock and, and, and and there's that going on, um, and you know lots of descriptions are of 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 cows, the, the sound of cows that haven't been milked, howling in pain, and all yes. that, and that the that you have turned up and disrupted this sort of rural thing because the Germans the Germans obviously were occupying Normandy, but but men had been taken away to work in Germany and all that sort of thing. That had happened. But when you actually turn up and bomb the shit out of everything, I mean, it's quite hard to say you're liberating it, isn't it? Yeah, and I've got I've got a series of photographs of French towns and villages, and it's just one off the other, just completely, utterly destroyed. Ornay yeah. sur, uh, uh, sur Odon, yeah. for example. Ornay. I mean, you look at this, it's just the, the town hall is left standing, and the rest of it is just... Totally just flat. Like, totally flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so anyway, we've um, oh, oh yeah, what are we doing now? James? We've got to wrap up. We, well, we've oh. got to wrap up really. We, we, we've got to do our mystery object. Yo, lovely. And in our kind of sort of jacket theme, I brought actually I brought two jackets this week. So I brought <laughs> an original M forty one. So this is an American. This is an American jacket, standard jacket. And what I think is a bit like the battle dress. You can learn so much from looking at yeah. the uniforms And it's from a sort World of bleached out olive green. Yep, this it's is OD call- number three. Olive, right. olive and it's sort of bomber three. jacket cut, so it's cut to your waist. Yeah, so what happens in early 1940, General George Marshall, who's the chief of staff of the of the army in the US, says, come on, look, we're, we're rapidly expanding the size of our army. And the army had been very, very old-fashioned. It was old-fashioned wool tunics, you know, First World War style, putties and sort of Tommy helmets yeah. and all the rest of it. And okay, come on, you know, we're, gonna, we're building this... this this army it's going to be a civilian army we want them to feel at home we want them to feel like they've got a warm comfortable um uniform which is good for movement yeah. you know let's kick all the other stuff into touch we want something that looks modern because america is the most modern nation in the planet yeah and so they start looking at um civilian wind cheaters 
and they trial it with the 5th Division in 1940. And the 5th Division is commanded by Major General James Parsons. And half of his um, division is up in Alaska and half of them in the Midwest. So they put them in both. And they also want a universal jacket, a jacket that will do for everybody. Yeah. So they use, you know, what, what have they got lots of in America? They've got lots of cotton. So they make it sort of cotton-based with a sort of wool lining. It's this sort of cotton poplin. It's actually water-resistant. It's got a zip-up. It oh. hasn't got any... Kind of, it doesn't look particularly martial. It doesn't look particularly no. military. Just, just remember, this is 1940 that yeah. we're talking about. First comes into into service in 1941, and this is a jacket that all guys are issued with in in 1944 when they do the invasion of Normandy. It's the bog standard jacket, and you know you can still wear this. This is the most produced military jacket ever in the history of man. 23 million of them, and loads of them were worn afterwards. T-shirts, chinos, and stuff. You know, it's a good look. Yeah, um, and you can, you know. Someone like me, um, with my kind of penchant for uh, World War II jackets, I can get away with wearing out this, wearing this without looking at a total knob. Yes, um, I mean you contrast that with because uh, we talk my ages. German greatcoat. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't wear your German great greatcoat in public, James. You have to do that in the privacy of your own home, <laughs> <laughs> and even there, and somewhere quite dark yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah, you see that. You see. It's only the it's only well, these are these epaulets are they what do they call the shoulder straps or yep. yeah it's only that that really gives away that this might be like a kind of military jacket yeah is the thing and it um, comes with wool trousers um, and in, interestingly they they have um, the buttons for the suspenders you know the braces yeah but they also have belt hoops as well because you don't really want to be wearing um, suspenders if you want to go for a number two yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you just want to sort of whip down your trousers and, and get on with it and so that's where the sort of belts really start coming into this it the zip at this point is um is cutting edge technology isn't it yeah the zip well the zips have been zip in zip. i can't remember when the zips are first invented but they're not really being used on on uniforms until the americans use them right amazing but i've also got this is a um, new version of the m43 so what they decide in 19 1942 is that actually they've got too many people with different uniforms right um so the airborne they've got their own airborne smocks yeah, for example yeah. their own airborne jack, jump jackets then there's the m41 what they want is a kind of universal jacket that can be used by all troops so they develop this this is olive drab this is the m43 um and this is olive drab number seven it's made of cotton sateen so you can see it looks a little bit kind of sheeny yeah. but that's to help it be a little bit more water resistant and then it's got the same color od3 on the inside yeah but lots more pockets um and this is supposed to be used for, by everybody and what they do provide is a kind of sort of liner kind of sort of yep. fur liner that you can put on the inside of it and a hood that you can use in winter but it's bog standard and although there are a few of them being used in normandy in 1944 it doesn't really become standard issue until the autumn of 1944 it's trialed by 3rd infantry division in Anzio, funny and that's enough. That's the kind of jacket you see um, people on CND marches in, isn't it? It's yeah. like classic lefty yep. apparel. And, and it's and it's and it's it's changed in the nineteen sixties. There's, there's a, one a, a development in the nineteen fifties, and there is one in the nineteen sixties, the M sixty five, which is the yeah. famous one they used in Vietnam, yeah. with, which has got the zip. But basically, it's the same, and it's a really really good jacket. It's really yeah. comfortable. It's got room in all the bits that you need, so you can crawl on the ground really easily. It's got lots of room, so you can lift your rifle, your weapon to your yeah. your, your, your chin really easily. Anyway, I have got one here, which we are going to give away. At Chalk Valley when we do our live podcast. Oh, wow. So there you are, as seen on TV. One size worth, fits which all. Worth very much. Jacket Field M1943. There you go. Um, okay. And so that will be on 
we'll be uh, posing a question or something. We'll Sorry. be doing something on Twitter yeah. about how you can get hold of this. But you do, you are going to need to be at the Chalk Valley History Festival on Saturday, the 29th, 29th of, of June. And midday. I think we're doing that at midday. Yeah, noon. Yes. From our Jimmy two-and-a-half-ton truck. Excellent. And uh, you'll need to be there to get it. Yeah, um, and the, yes, you'll need to come and get it. We're not posting but it But this to you. is an Make M43, an size 44 chest. and um, Genuine item. Okay. Genuine item. Super. Well, we'll see you at Chalk Valley History Festival on the 29th, um, all you jacket fiends. Get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag... Hashtag we have ways or using the email we have ways podcast at gmail.com. But do remember to subscribe, rate, and review us, but only if you like the thing on whichever podcast platform you prefer. Cheerio. Yep. Pip, pip. <laughs>